MSW Media. The year 2020 is here. So what can we expect from the year to come? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, who once again is on the campaign trail, so we'll bring in our guest in just a minute. But first, I want to thank our patrons who brought you this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Du, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, and an anonymous patron. You can become a patron, too, on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So let's bring in our guest, Mimi Roca. You know her because she's been on MSNBC quite a bit. Now she's running for Westchester County District Attorney. She, of course, is a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York for many years. So let's bring in Mimi now. Welcome back to the podcast, Mimi. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be back. Since we last had you on, there's been a lot that's changed. Obviously, the impeachment saga has, uh, you know, has played itself out. We have articles of impeachment. Um, Donald Trump has been impeached, but also separate and apart from that, uh, we have a lot of other legal news going into this year. I, I, we also, at, at this stage, uh, we, you know, this, we're taping this the day after the uh, the strike uh, of you know killing that Iranian official. We may be at war with Iran, but what I want to focus on today is talking about all of the you know potential legal developments that we have going forward, and there there are quite a few. I feel like a lot is getting lost in the shuffle here. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, I, I feel like before impeachment, we really kind of followed every twist and turn of the Russia investigation and, you know, cases that were coming up about the Trump campaign. And because those didn't sort of land with a big splash, I think people tuned everything else out except impeachment, kind of put all their eggs in that basket. Um, And it's a big basket and it's an important one, but there's still a lot going on. I mean, the one that, that, you know, I sort of still um, am very focused on for a bunch of reasons, I'm sure you are too, is this sort of elephant in the room of Rudy Giuliani and his legal issues and what's going on in the Southern District of New York. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, he is a really interesting character. Obviously, we just had that that video of him. I think he was at Mar-a-Lago sort of sputtering on about, you know, he was going to prosecute something or another as racketeering. It's sure from the context, they were asking what he was going to do with this impeachment case. So it seemed to me like he's talking about the uh, impeachment matter, but who knows? I mean, in his mind, maybe he's prosecuting Biden or Democrats. I don't know what he thought he's talking about, but he's the the point is he's still carrying on as if he's you know he's going to Ukraine and he's uh, carrying on as you know as claiming he's Trump's attorney still, um, and seems undis- un- undissuaded by this, and yet he's a subject of a federal criminal investigation, uh, and they look like they're looking at him pretty actively. Yeah. And, you know, again, I um, I continue to have faith in the Southern District of New York and its independence. Um, 
despite Bill Barr, which is quite a statement. Um, but, you know, I will say e- even I am, am sort of at the point that, you know, if, if Rudy Giuliani were not Rudy Giuliani, i.e. a white male, uh, powerful, connected person, you know, connected to the president, et cetera, and he were displaying this level of criminality in some other context, he wouldn't still be walking free. And so it is, you know, I, I think prosecutors need time to build cases that are prosecutable, as you and I have discussed many times, right? The difference between us sitting here as pundits and, you know, reading reporting of things that sound really bad and, and sound to me, you know, potentially quite criminal um, is very different than a prosecutor going into a grand jury and putting in evidence to meet all the elements of a crime and knowing that you could take a case to trial and, and, and think that you could win it. Um, that's a obviously much higher burden and prosecutors need time to get there. So I'm, I'm trying to be patient and, and, and stay objective about it. But, you know, it, it is hard to watch him, Giuliani, flaunt it almost, flaunt his criminality, what I view as criminality, you know, by going back to Ukraine, coming back, saying he has all this information, claiming to be working as the president's lawyer when really he's working as his fixer slash campaign aid. Um, there's no lawyer part about this. So um, it, it's hard to watch, really. It, it, it goes to sort of this whole theme that we've talked about of um, this lawlessness that people in the Trump administration and around him seem to get away with. Well, I think what people are learning about is the difference between sort of the letter of what the law says and what you can get away with. There's, uh, there's often a gap there. In other words, as you and I know, um, you mean you're alluding to a moment ago that it can be difficult to build a criminal case that's sufficient to um, indict and charge somebody with a crime, you know, to charge somebody with a crime and ultimately convict them beyond a reasonable doubt. And so there, you know, a lot of people, uh, not just the people in the Trump administration, play on the boundaries in the gray areas between what is legal and what is, you know, something that you can be indicted and convicted for. And uh, you know, that is, I think, what a lot of um, citizens, a lot of people in the public are seeing for the first time. It's something that I think you and I are familiar with as, as lawyers who operate in this space. But, you know, I think what the what sets the Trump administration apart is that they, you know, there, as you said, it's almost like it's brazen, right? There's this sense that, like, we're focused on, you know, we're willing to do whatever we can get away with. And if some statute book, you know, says otherwise, uh, we don't really concern ourselves with that or we're, we're going to push the boundaries of what's acceptable. We're going to blast through every norm. And really all we care about is what we can, you know, what can potentially harm us. And, you know, and when you control the presidency, there's a lot you can get away with. I mean, Giuliani probably thinks he's getting a pardon. Yeah, I think that's that's all right. Um, but, you know, I will say that First of all, I mean, this idea of the pardon is, uh, I mean, this doesn't mean that Giuliani is thinking rationally, but he should remember <laughs> that Paul Manafort is still sitting in jail um, and, and will be for, you know, at least until Trump is, uh, well, if Trump is reelected, right? I cannot imagine Trump pardoning him uh, before that. I think that this idea, you know, yeah, lots of people skirt the lines of law. I mean, that that's not just unique to the Trump administration. What's unique to this administration is how, I think, brazen and open they are about it. 
and how much they keep getting away with it. I mean, to me personally, I'll speak personally, like that's what I have been the most, that is what has felt the most defeating to me over this past um, three years. As someone who does respect the rule of law and practical, I understand that every law is enforced every second of every day in a perfect way, but watching the brazenness of how much they, they sort of flaunt it and seem to get away with it is, is what's hard. And Giuliani is doing that now to it, you know, he, he's enjoying this, right? He's on Twitter now. He, for a while, he was kind of quiet, but now mm-hmm. he's out there saying, this is what I'm doing. I'm going back to Ukraine. I'm getting dirt on Joe Biden, you know, which, look, I'm not saying there aren't arguments to be made by a defense lawyer as to why that is not a crime, but it, it also, there are really, really good and obvious arguments that we've all talked about, I think, as to why it is a crime um, or at least part of a crime. And for him to do it like that and just keep getting away with it is it's very hard to watch. Well, from my perspective, I will say I have been more skeptical than some. I know there's many who who disagree with me on this. I know that, for example, Joyce Vance and Barb McQuaid, I think, came up with a draft indictment. I, I am skeptical that the Ukraine stuff that he's doing is, you know, as we know it, the stuff with Trump would be charged um, for because I think it would be there'd be too many defense arguments you could make. But, you know, Giuliani, I think, is being looked at closely because, of course, he's a close financial uh, and business affiliate of two individuals who've already been indicted, Parnas and Fruman. So, I, you know, to me, um, I think, you know, he he doesn't, you know, he, he has very serious concerns because of that. If I was representing him, my first, you know, my, what I would be telling him is whenever the Southern District's looking at you, I don't care what you think of them. You know, he insulted people in the Southern District recently. You know, that's serious business. There is you, you should, you know, he, he should know that as well as anybody. And when you're, you know, a close financial and business affiliate of people who've been indicted, you're at risk and you should know that. And, you know, that's just common sense. I don't even think you need a lawyer to tell you that. And so, you know, he should be proceeding more carefully. He shouldn't be tweeting. He shouldn't be, you know, thumbing his nose at the prosecutors. Um, but, you know, a lot of people who are looked at by the government, a lot of people, even after they're indicted, you get this point where you can compartmentalize. And I think, um, you know, people kind of put it out of their mind and they think they're okay because they don't hear something for a while. And as you know, Mimi, these investigations can go on for years. And I think the public's starting to learn that too, with them, whether it's a Mueller investigation or other things, they, they see how long an investigation can be. So, you know, for right now, Giuliani maybe feels like he's, you know, he's safe for now, but that can all change in a year or two. Or sooner. I mean, it, it, you know, and, and we it, there are some interesting and hard questions for prosecutors, right? Let's say they are, um, you know, in a position to charge soon. I mean, I think they're still plenty far away from any election that that shouldn't be a barrier. But, you know, if they, I mean, I was actually thinking about this. If let's say they were to charge Giuliani with something in the next, you know, month, let's just, I mean, very hypothetical. How would that affect Congress's ability to get evidence if there is further you know, proceedings where, where they seek evidence, right? We know that Parnas's lawyer is out there saying Parnas is going to turn over all this evidence to Congress and DOJ is not objecting. Um, okay. But you know, what if, if Giuliani were indicted, he might have some bases to object himself um, to some evidence, you know, if it's connected to him being turned over and, and the prosecutors might have a reason then to hold it back. So, uh, not necessarily the partners evidence, but other evidence that might be relevant, um, 
I don't know, it, it, it could raise some interesting questions whether that plays into the timing or not. I could see that, you know, if you're sitting there in the office discussing it, I could see that being part of the, the discussion. Because ironically, if Bill Barr had opened an investigation into the Ukraine call, I mean, you and I, I think have talked about this um, back when it first happened and DOJ said, no, no crime here, nothing to, inv- no, nothing to even investigate, which is crazy. I mean, whether or not you charge, it's crazy, the idea that there was nothing to investigate. But had he opened a criminal investigation, it would have actually been much harder for, for even harder for Congress to get any evidence because um, DOJ would have said, ongoing investigation, you know, nobody can turn anything over it. It would have been a pretty legitimate, um, at least stall tactic. Uh, so I think Bill Barr actually made a miscalculation there. Yeah, I suppose. You know, I think my sense is that Barr wanted to stay as far away from this as possible, too. This enabled him to just sort of wash his hands of it like Pontius Pilate or something and just sort of stand off to the sidelines and not deal with it. I think that, you know, one thing I think is interesting, you know, you mentioned Parnas, um, you know, his lawyer saying that he wants to come forward and so forth. I found that very interesting. You know, he's gotten, he's, he's, gotten rid of one of his lawyers. He's kept the other. It's, it sounds like funds are running low in Team Parnas. Uh, and, you know, the, it seems like they're trying to position him as this guy who's trying to help the public. It seemed to me like what he was trying to do is set himself up for sentencing and essentially say, look, I'm this truth teller and I'm just a pawn in the scheme and I'm trying to do my best to help Congress and hope that he gets a judge who gives him some credit for that. Is that was that your read as well? Yeah, I think he's doing, trying to do exactly what Michael Cohen tried to do. And again, he should look at how that works out for Michael Cohen, right? Like, it seems to me that he has sort of tried to cooperate with the Southern District. I mean, we, we've, he, he was, his lawyer has essentially said that. Um, but, it, it, and again, I'm just reading between the lines of, of what has been said out there publicly that it, it seems like, you know, he was doing one of those dances of I'm cooperating, but not fully cooperating. I'll give you this. But they thought he was lying about things. Um, and um, so in the alternative or in addition, he thinks, well, I can go to Congress and give them my evidence and then you know, when the judge sentences me here in the Southern District of New York, the the judge will see how cooperative I was. But that doesn't really work. I mean, we, again, we saw that with Michael Cohen, because unless the prosecutors, at least in the Southern District, unless the prosecutors who are the ones um, asking for requesting a certain sentence, say, we think he deserves credit for cooperation, most judges will not give him some credit for that. I mean, they can take it into account in a general way under the the sentencing law, but it won't get him very far unless the prosecutors are also on board. And the prosecutors aren't going to be on board if they think he's been minimizing or or not fully truthful with them. That's right. And, you you know, there's been a lot of FOIA uh, documents coming out uh, from, you know, that the press has foyered uh, regarding the Mueller investigation. One set did include some of those interview reports with Michael Cohen, and it was pretty clear that prosecutors in the Southern District, you know, caught him in a number of, you know, false statements, or at least, you know, they, they detailed those. I will note that these FOIA documents are very heavily redacted, 80, 90 percent redacted. But the ones with Michael Cohen showing that he lied were not. It seemed like an interesting, you know, an interesting choice by <laughs> DOJ. Uh, but uh, in any event, um, you know, you could see that he, you know, he was somebody you could see why the Southern District didn't do that. I, you know, I don't know with the. 
uh, why he hasn't gotten uh, a deal from the Southern District, and maybe because he's made false statements. It also may mean that he he doesn't have anything to offer the Southern District that they want that would relate to a potential criminal case. In other words, you know, he has a lot of interesting things to say about Giuliani and Trump and whatever, and that may all be interesting, but it doesn't necessarily relate to anything that Southern District can charge, and that's what they care about. You know, they're not interested in the atmospherics of it all. Absolutely. That, that is a, a possibility and, and we shouldn't ov- overlook that. I guess I'm sort of assuming that he has information about Giuliani and that goes back to the original question that look, that may point to this idea that, you know, Giuliani's conduct while bad isn't criminal um, or, or provable criminal um, or it may, it may be something else. But um, my sense from the things I was reading, and of course this is again, just me piecing together things from public reporting um, and comments that were made was that Parnas was trying to cooperate, but but sort of being rebuffed because he he wasn't fully trying to cooperate. It, it, which is strange because Joe Bondi, his lawyer, I mean, I, 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 Joe Bondi, you know, has had cases as a criminal defense lawyer with the Southern District of New York for years. He knows how it works. But he's also very savvy, as you can see, you know, he quickly got on Twitter and started publicizing, you know, hear from Parnas or I forget what the hashtag was. So he he knows how to play the public relations game, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if Parnas, you know, first of all, just because Parnas may not have the goods on Giuliani doesn't mean that Giuliani did it, you know, didn't commit a crime either. All it means is the question is what what. You know, he's got credibility issues. The, the Southern District may have ultimately taken a pass. We don't know. Um, but w- what I would say is that, um, uh, you know, this whole strategy is not something you usually do if you are cooperating and getting a deal because the Southern District is not going to want you to, to go on the record saying, you know, giving your thoughts about various things in another environment. They're going to want you to save your testimony for trial because whatever he says to Congress or to the public can be used to trial to to impeach him. You know, you never say exactly the same thing uh, when you're recounting something uh, in different lo- different occasions, and so you know those inconsistencies or minor minor differences can be used against him. So what this tells me is he's not getting a deal from the Southern District for whatever reason, and he you know he thinks that he uh, you know will benefit from getting his name out there, and and he very well may. I mean, it may be a good sentencing tactic with certain judges. I, I could see that if he's not. Somebody who was dishonest with the Southern District, I could see prosecutors just sort of standing silent while his lawyer talks about everything that he was doing to help Congress or the, or the public or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, we're, we're speculating what we can say with the most certainty is that it doesn't seem at this moment like there is a cooperation deal in the making between the Southern District and Parnas. What the reason for that is could be any one of these things that we're, we're talking about. So we'll have, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll sort of know at some point the same way we now know about Cohen, because I remember at the, at the time people were, why, why aren't they signing Cohen up? Um, and, you know, I think as more information came out, including the sentencing letter for Cohen, it became clear that they just didn't think he was telling the truth. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about, here's another uh, thing that I think we can expect in the year ahead. One of our listeners, TJ, Asked, when do you think the Durham investigation will conclude and how do you think the House and Senate might respond to that report? Um, you know, we've talked a little, I've talked a little bit on the podcast about this in the past. Uh, one thing's for sure is, you know, it's pretty clear to me that there's some something substantial more 
for Durham to do because otherwise I think Barr would have liked to have had some something else to uh, give a different uh, a different uh, spin on the OIG report, which wasn't a hundred percent what I think Barr would have wanted it to say. Uh, what what's your take on that, Mimi? Yeah, I mean, look, Durham is another sort of mystery to me in the sense that. Look, I never liked the fact that this investigation was undertaken in the first place because it seemed unnecessary given that there was the IG investigation going on um, when Durham was uh, appointed or, or assigned with this. Um, but, you know, I listened to folks who said that, you know, they knew Durham to be this straight shooter and you know, wasn't going to play political games. But then when the IG report came out and Durham put out that very unnecessary, I think, inappropriate statement saying that he disagreed with some, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but disagreed with some of the conclusions. I, I mean, that just, you know, puts him in, in, in the Bill Barr category, right? Like, why is he making any statement at all before his investigation is done? Um, and what does that even mean? I mean, how do you make a statement like that as a prosecutor without saying what you're talking about? It just casts doubt on a legitimate investigation by the IG without, without any specifics. It, it, it just seemed very improper to me. And so put him in a, in a whole different light, not a good one. <laughs> yeah. I would certainly say that, you know, prosecutors, uh, you know, generally do not, you know, give statements about ongoing investigations and certainly talk about what their conclusions might be for all sorts of obvious reasons, because, you want to wait till you gather all the evidence to, to form what your conclusions are for, um, you know, for one thing. And second of all, um, the purpose of criminal investigations is not to uh, give conclusions and thoughts about various subjects. It's to generate criminal charges. So if you, you know, e you know, either you, you know, issue charges or you don't. Um, I will just say, you know, I wouldn't put Durham in quite in Barr's category because I feel like Barr is in a league of his own <laughs> uh, in terms sure. of misleading the public. Uh, I don't know whether Durham has misled the public, but I will say that it certainly looked to me, I agree with you, that it looked like it gave the appearance that it was a, a statement that was done for political reasons. And that's concerning. And I suspect, although I don't know, that this was done at Barr's behest, um, you know, that it was done at Barr's request. I don't know if that is known publicly, but it certainly looked that way to me. Um, yeah, I mean, what I, what I saw was more was that people said this is a Durham was someone who was very press averse. So while, there, you know, it just it seemed very uh, against his grain for him to put something like that out. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I think most prosecutors are press averse. You're not you don't try to use the press. Uh, you know, there's a lot of dangers with yeah. that, just so everyone understands that, you know, if the prosecutor is using the media to get messages out about people they're investigating or subjects they're investigating, defendants can use that to say that the, that the prosecutor is trying to taint the jury pool in some way. So prosecutors usually have to be very careful about what they say. Uh, and so that, you know, with good reason, they don't they, they say often as little as possible that's not um, f already contained within an indictment. You know, and they usually say the indictment alleges this as opposed to really coming out making any broader statements than that because of um, exact, you know, this this specific concern. So it's very, very odd for for someone like Durham to be coming out and making these sort of statements. Um, 
let's talk a, a little bit, you know, a lot that we've gotten a lot of questions about impeachment. I, I think one thing that's worth talking about is the just security, uh, you know, uh, a bombshell that came out recently. I'm a member of the editorial board there. It's certainly a publication worth checking out. You know, Mimi, what was your take on that uh, on that release? Certainly, it was significant enough. It actually drew you know some responses from from members of Congress, including uh, Adam Schiff. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought you know once again it was the kind of um, bombshell <laughs> that you know in other times maybe would ha- have a big impact, right? Because really, what 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 this showed is that documents that were turned over to Congress, letters that were written to Congress had it would seem to be lies, intentional misstatements um, to try to cover up the fact that Trump had been the one to direct that the aid didn't withheld and that people within DOD and the Pentagon had real concerns about this and voiced them at the time. And instead of which is different from what OMB told Congress. They said everyone was okay with this, basically. Again, paraphrasing. Um, So it shows sort of a a double whammy. It shows that at the time there were professionals, not just the professionals we've already heard from on sort of the Foreign Service side, but on on the military side who said, this is wrong, you can't do this, and, you know, tried to change change the decision to withhold the aid. Um, And secondly, that there was even more, I mean, we sort of knew that there was a cover up going on, right? I mean, we could, we could see it happening in real time, but literally it, this shows the cover up in the sense of there was actually damaging information redacted out of documents and in a very haphazard way, right? Because some of the redactions, I guess you could argue um, you know, we're under this sort of deliberative process idea, but other things that were deliberative process that would fall in that category that, that weren't damaging or, you know, to, to the uh, president weren't redacted. So they didn't follow that consistently. So it's hard to see that they're like what the legitimate reasons for redactions were and, and redacting information is pretty much the quintessential cover up when it shouldn't be redacted. And it is. Um, so I think it's kind of a double whammy, which is why people are reacting to it, showing both the proof of Trump being the one to direct the decision in spite of professionals saying this is not the right thing to do. And it is pretty proof positive of this cover up that seems to be going on by many different people, but largely OMB, which remember is Mulvaney, right? I mean, he's both chief of staff and OMB, which is this weird, like, thing also. Um, but but that could sort of explain why OMB is, is so um, uh, on the president's side for this. Yeah, I I will say, uh, the, yeah, I think you raise a lot of good points. I mean, first of all, to me, my my first takeaway, and I expressed this on Twitter, was you know, this just show, goes to show you how much better this case would have been for the, 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 the House Democrats case against Trump if they had all the documents. Now, the case is strong as is. I mean, they have all the evidence they need. I certainly advocated for them going forward instead of sitting there in court trying to, you know, obtain documents and records. But it certainly goes to show you. I mean, I think Daniel Goldman, who was 
one of the uh, the attorneys for the House uh, Intelligence Committee said that you know this would ordinarily be a document case. In other words, a case that's proven up by documents and emails and notes and so forth. And this goes to show that the, the documents could really make this case even stronger. So that's one one kind of obvious takeaway for me. You know, regarding the redactions, yeah, I agree with you that this was you know very aggressively redacted. I mean, what I would just say is. You know, part of the the issue here is that you know FOIA, of course, is a was a law that was that was enacted in order to you know give transparency to our government. I'm a big believer in transparency. I think that you know that allows for more accountability from our government officials. We seem to have a, a real lack of that in this administration. And but you know this exception, this exception to FOIA B five, you know, is very broad. Courts have interpreted it broadly, and essentially. Um, you know, they uh, intergovernmental memos uh, are uh, can often just be, or reports can often just be, the uh, you know entirely exempted out of FOIA. Or at least that's the the uh, the uh, the DOJ position on it. And as you point out, they they did it aggressively, overly aggressively in a lot of spots here. And it sure looks like they did it to to cover things up or to not make the administration look bad. And then in other circumstances, they weren't as aggressive. And, you know, it really uh, smacks of abusing their ability to um, uh, decide what, you know, that when they want to assert this FOIA exception. And I think courts really need to look at, uh, you know, whether or not that exception is as broad as they've read it to be. And Congress, I think, which is it's more in the elected officials, really need to take a look at changing those FOIA exceptions. You know, it's hard to you know the the problem, of course, is you have to get a president willing to sign that into office into law, and so you'll you probably would need a new administration. But you know, I think this is something that people who are concerned about FOIA and transparency should be taking a look at. Uh, but overall, I mean, one thing I think this also raises is that you know maybe uh, things are going to change going forward for the impeachment inquiry. In other words, we've re- we've reached. A kind of a certain uh, milestone here where there's articles of impeachment. You know, they haven't been transmitted to the Senate. We could talk about that in a whole debate in a minute. Uh, but I think a lot of people are assuming like, okay, the debate now is about what the trial looks like. Well, maybe the facts will change. Uh, it's it's hard for me to believe they're going to change dramatically enough to, to uh, persuade Republican senators of much of anything. Uh, I'm maybe a little too cynical on that, but I just have lost any, any faith in them uh, having an open mind about any of this. Um, but, uh, you know, but I, I think it, it's certainly possible that, that we could have some new facts that emerge just like these, uh, these facts emerged in the uh, Just Security uh, emails. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, uh, you know, I think people can debate sort of the strategy and, and whether it made sense to hold back the articles of impeachment and, and, you know, what that strategy was. But the fact is that, you know, this uh, evidence, this new information has come out, which is helpful to the Democrats in arguing why there should be some senators, um, you know, the, at least the, the, the four who claim to be sort of, you know, more independent um, should say, let's go ahead and, and get more evidence in the Senate. Let's get these documents in at a minimum. Um, because there's just no rational argument anymore for the idea that more evidence isn't relevant or uh, going to inform 
the senators in their decision about impeachment. I mean, no one can argue rationally, and I, but that's the problem, right? Is we have to suspend reality a little bit because that seems to be what, what everybody on the Republican side is doing. They're just saying what they're saying in the face of facts. But if we do think about this rationally, there really can be no claim that more information at this point would be relevant, important, and further the goal of truth-seeking. Again, understanding, and I know you're, you're cynical, and so am I, but I, you know, I, I do um, try to hold out hope that someone cares, or at least will, even if they don't really care about truth-seeking, that some of these senators will understand that all of this is coming out. It's, it's coming out now. It's going to continue to come out over the years, and they want to be on the side of at least having said out loud, I care about the truth. I want, I want to find as much facts as possible. They're not even, it doesn't even mean they'll vote in favor of impeachment. It just means they're saying, let's get the information out there. And, and that, you know, five, 10 years down the road, when this is all out there, that you want to be the person, one of the senators who said, I care enough about that about the truth, about fact finding, about all of that for, for this to, you know, for us to have more information. That, that's what I don't understand. Is there, we're not even asking for their vote right now. We're asking for them to sort of state, make that kind of statement of I care about the truth, which doesn't seem like it should be controversial, but I understand that it is. Yeah. I, you know, look, I, I expected this to occur differently. I expected Republican senators to pretend uh, like they were very concerned about the truth and then they would ultimately return a, a vote not removing Trump anyway uh, from the Republican senators. In other words, they'd listen to a few witnesses and play along. Uh, and and I'm not sure whether that's a better or worse result. I suppose it, from a process perspective, it's better. I think there's a, you know, forcing them to, you know, actually hear witnesses and can, you know, be confronted with evidence, I think is the way the process is supposed to work. But I think a lot of the people who are upset by what the the Senate is doing are expecting that, you know, there's this hope inside of them that, well, we're, when Republican senators hear a witness speak, that that's going to somehow change their minds. And I really believe that, you know, if you are somebody who's involved in public life and at this point hearing everything you've heard about the Ukrainian uh, episode here with Trump, if you're not very concerned about that, uh, now, I don't really think that hearing, you know, a few witnesses uh, live is going to change that. Um, so I'm perhaps overly cynical uh, or n not on the hope side of things, but that's that's the way I look at it. You know, I will say that, you know, just to kind of, one thing I should address is, you know, I did write a, a column uh, in Politico about um, the uh, about holding the articles indefinitely, a decision that, uh, you know, Pelosi for has thus far not transmitted the articles of impeachment. And I had heard from a member of Congress that she was considering holding them indefinitely and not transmitting them. So I wrote that column. Uh, you know, saying I did not think that was a good decision. And there's a lot of reasons why. But I think one one uh, key one is that I think McConnell is just going to ignore that and either hold a vote anyway, uh, just, you know, hold a vote, uh, you know, refusing to remove Trump or just ignore the whole thing and just go on with other business. Uh, I don't really see the, the Democrats achieving anything uh, substantively about that. But um, you know, uh, maybe there's some political gain that I don't see because I'm certainly not a political expert. Uh, but I think that drama is going to continue um, at least for the next couple weeks uh, or so. And because and, I think if, you know, e either Pelosi is going to transmit these things in January or the, if she holds them, it could be for quite some time.
Yeah, I, I don't love the idea of holding them indefinitely, but it, but I I agree. I mean, I think that's the 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 lawyer in me, as opposed to I understand this is more of a political thing. I mean, I, I think that at at some point, you know, even if we know uh, what the conclusion is going to be, and we've given them opportunities to put you know allow more evidence, and they've you know rejected that, you make them vote, right? You make them. Um, you know, cast their vote, which I, I would be part would be a sham at that point, I think, um, and a shame. But you you make them do it. You know, it's almost giving them an out. You know, to to not send the articles. I think at some point. Yeah, I think what they'll say is, well, they didn't even send us the case, so you know, we're not going to consider. We're just going to vote, and you know, the to to you know, based on what we've. What we've seen over in the house, or we're just gonna, you know, whatever. They're just they'll just do whatever they're gonna do, either ignore it or hold some, you know, some vote and quickly get to their, you know, their whatever fifty, you know, fifty plus votes against and be done with it. Um, you know, and a related question. You know, we I will tell you, maybe we've gotten so many questions from listeners about impeachment, and one from Adam Rifkin asks, "Is there any legal recourse if fifty-one senators refuse to hear witnesses?" Uh, and the answer, Adam, is no, there is not. And in fact, the Constitution doesn't specify anything about how an uh, impeachment trial uh, is going to be conducted, really. Very little, I should say, almost nothing about how that trial is going to be conducted. It's up to the Senate. Um, and I don't expect there to be any uh, recourse if senators decide they want to hear no witnesses, one witness, or uh, or any other number. Do, do you agree with that, Mimi? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is, at this point, in the hands of the uh, the, the the political you know wins basically and the political uh, process and and I just I don't think there's uh, even if you had the time to go to a court I, I don't even think that there's really this is one area where I think a court wouldn't intervene um, I think it's different than asking a court to intervene uh, to to stop someone from blocking witnesses you know, someone who controls those witnesses. But that's different than telling senators they have to um, hear certain evidence. And and by the way, that's another legal development. I think today uh, the court is hearing an appeal, uh, the uh, subpoena to Don McGahn and whether his claims and immunity uh, are legitimate or not. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that case, although I don't expect... Uh, you know, any kind of decision anytime soon. I don't, you know, and I don't know what that'll affect it. You know, it'd be interesting to see if, if, you know, I certainly think the House would like to hear from Mr. McGahn. Um, and, you know, so eventually we may hear from him, although it may be many months from now. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do um, if that in fact happens, because I think both of us, you know, we wrote an op-ed together talking about how we thought if Trump wasn't president uh, in, you know, in office right now, that he would be charged with obstructing justice. But, um, you know, I don't know what the House is going to do with that. You know, Mike Quigley, a congressman who was uh, on our podcast, you know, said that he thought there was only one shot at impeachment. He didn't think the House would consider uh, multiple, you know, shots. That's more of a political judgment on their part. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, uh, Mimi, probably the biggest, you know, number of questions we received from listeners is about the authority that the Chief Justice has, John Roberts, in an impeachment trial. You know, Ann asked, what authority does he have? Um, you know, over, you know, members that are working with the White House, can he force them to recuse themselves? Uh, Robin asked, you know, um, 
what can uh, just Chief Justice Roberts do to senators who are violating their oath of impartiality uh, and so on? Many other questions. Um, you know, another uh, listener asked, you know, what can Chief Justice Roberts do to ensure fairness? What are his limitations? You know, and so on. Can he require witnesses to testify? Can he stop a vote to dismiss? Well, let me just say, uh, from my perspective, I, Chief Justice Roberts' role, I understand a lot of these questions, as a side note, are coming from uh, 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 you know, things that uh, Professor Tribe, Lawrence Tribe, has published. He's been a former guest. I have great respect for Professor Tribe. But I don't um, – and I certainly think you can make arguments about whether or not people are violating their oaths. But I don't really expect uh, Chief Justice Roberts to do anything about any of this. Um, because uh, for a couple things. One is this is also something that's not expressly discussed in the Constitution. Certainly he has a role at presiding over this, um, but he doesn't have – there's no requirements uh, or anything directing him uh, to um, you know, force witnesses to recuse or to ensure fairness or anything like that. Um, and I would think he's going to want to stay out of any dispute that's going to look partisan or like, make it look like he is – uh, siding with Republicans or Democrats uh, in this trial. I think he's going to try to stay above the fray and let the senators work this out as a political um, exercise. Uh, I'm curious what your take is uh, on that, Mimi. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right um, overall. Uh, I do think, you know, a lot of people have been pointing to the fact that in his um, sort of state of the year, you know, address, uh, he made a big deal about um you know, in a big deal. He 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 seemed to be talking about judicial independence and 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 making some uh, at least um, subtle, very subtle <laughs> stabs mm-hmm. at you know Trump's attacks on the judiciary, which he's done in the past too. When he made statement, he made a statement, a, a rare statement, where he he came out and said uh, in response, I forget to one of Trump's outbursts about a judge. He said, uh, Justice Roberts said. You know, there aren't Obama judges and Trump judges. You know, we're all basically just judges trying to follow the law and do the right thing. Um, so, so he has shown, you know, some uh, ability to stand up to Trump in a, a sort of subtle way when it comes to the rule of law. And so that's encouraging. Um, I think, but I think that he, he will, you know, try his best to be as, as a judge should, impartial and, down the middle on things. I, I think it kind of depends how far the Republicans go, right? Like if they do something that's pretty um, wacky, like some of the things that went on in the House, you know, you can imagine if, I mean, she, he wasn't there, he didn't have a role in that, but you can imagine if Chief Justice Roberts had been there when some of the House members were making these arguments that had absolutely nothing to do with what was going on. And, you know, you thought you were in the Benghazi hearings or, or, you know, or something. Um, You could see him stepping in at that point, but it's doubtful that senators on the Republican side will do things sort of as wacky, Um, but you never know. And so I think in part, it depends how they conduct themselves, whether Roberts is able to play it down the middle or needs to step in and kind of, um, you know, rein things in. I think he won't let things get too out of control because it will reflect badly on him. But I don't think he'll take a very active role unless he needs to. Like, I I would love for him to refuse senators who, you know, have been overtly 
not just overtly partisan, but the ones who have said, I'm not even going to listen to the evidence. I mean, you know, I, I don't need to hear like, like Grant. Um, I mean, that is a big no-no for jurors. Um, you know, they, they at least have to give the semblance of trying to be impartial, but I don't think they will do that. I don't think Roberts will do that. Yeah, and I think what you're seeing here is also the limitations of analogies to other trials. I mean, this is not going to resemble a regular trial. It has nothing, you know, it's it's just not. It's it's a bunch of senators who are, who are political actors, and that was what the people who wrote the Constitution uh, wanted here. They wanted, they put this specific, specifically in the hands of the United States Senate, not 12 random citizens uh, or any other number of random citizens, uh, and they that's how they imagined it to be. So... Uh, that is what this is going to look like. Uh, one thing bef- uh, be- before we wrap up, I, I, there, there, we've gotten a number of questions about all these other legal cases out there. For instance, Michelle asked about you know, who's going to be the first to get Trump's taxes? What legal case is that going to come from? We have people asking about, for example, um, the attorney general, uh, the New York attorney general's investigations and so forth. So um, you know, I, I think that, you know, people are, are interested in all of these other investigations out there. Is there anything that you're paying attention to, Mimi, that you think people should be looking looking at? Well, I mean, I, you know, it almost seems like it has to be anticlimactic at this point, but I am still really hoping to see Trump's tax returns. Um, if nothing else, it's just at this point, the curiosity is, you know, just gotten the better of all of us, I think. What has he been trying to hide for so long? And so we still have those playing out in the courts, you know, that, I mean, it's, it's going to go to the Supreme Court at this point. Um, and it's going to be a while, but, but I, I am very curious to see how the Supreme Court rules on it. I think, you know, as we've discussed, I think if they're doing this in a non-political way, then we should see his tax returns. Um, at least through one, if not more of those cases. Um, and I, I think that could potentially be a big deal, but I also at this point, you know, know that nothing could be a big deal anymore as, because people are so numb to it, but it, it would be uh, satisfying to see those before the next election. I think. Yeah, I, I certainly uh, would expect that at some point we're going to see Trump's tax returns or at least the New York AG or, or someone like that will, um, you know, the question is, you know, what, will, what impact that will have? I don't know. I mean, the, the mere fact that Trump doesn't want people to see his tax returns doesn't necessarily mean there's a crime in there. It could just mean that, you know, he doesn't have the wealth that he thought he had or he's not paying taxes, uh, you know, in the amounts that people might assume. And like you said, I don't know what the political implications of any of that would be. I'm not an expert on any of that. But I, I, I'm looking at that case. I And there's a lot of other important legal cases out there. There's you know, cases against R. Kelly that are going, which I think are important just to show, um, you know, people who are out there who are victims of of, uh, of child predators uh, that, you know, people can be brought to justice. Um, and, you know, obviously we have those college admission scandal uh, cases. There's a lot of other legal cases that don't involve Trump that I think people are going to be paying attention to. So a lot going on in the upcoming year. One thing, of course, that's also going on, uh, you know, Mimi, you are you are now no longer uh, focusing on being a, a TV analyst. You are running uh, for office uh, in in Westchester County, New York, where you live, at, for district attorney. And I know that primary is coming up in June. I, I, w- can you tell us a little bit about what, why you decided to run? Sure. Yeah. I um, 
so I am running to be DA, district attorney in Westchester County, New York, um, which basically would be sort of the chief prosecutor for this county, which is just outside New York City. So it's it's uh, very metropolitan, actually. There's a lot of big cities in this county, and there's also uh, suburban areas. Um, when I was a federal prosecutor, I was chief of our White Plains Division for the Southern District of New York, which meant that I oversaw the case at federal cases um, for Westchester County, as well as other surrounding counties like Rockland and Putnam and a few others. Um, so I'm very familiar with sort of the law enforcement um, world here. Um, but now I want to explore it and, and be a part of it from a different angle from the from the county level, right? Because this is, you know, I've been talking for two years about Trump and the rule of law. And, and as you and I have discussed, it, it's it's almost maddening because there's only so much you can you can do about it at this point. And I hope that Trump is, you know, not reelected. I hope that whoever the Democratic nominee is elected. But one way or the other, there's going to be a lot of rebuilding to do. It's going to be um, either, you know, trying to sort of survive another four years of, of the Trump administration or rebuilding in the post-Trump era. And I think being at a local level government um, position would provide great opportunities for doing that. There's so much exciting change going on in the world of criminal justice right now um, on the reform side. And, you know, all these new reforms just came through in New York State and people are you know, trying to figure out how to make them work. They eliminated cash bail. They have new discovery laws that have better discovery for defendants. Um, and, and to me, you know, this this is the kind of stuff I love to sort of dig, dig into and, and really think through and how to best make um, the system work in a way that makes people community safe, but also makes the system more fair. So I've already started putting forth ideas about that, like on creating a conviction integrity unit, working on um, internet sex crimes against children, things that I've, human trafficking, um, gun safety issues. I mean, these are all things that I've worked on my whole career as a prosecutor and being able to implement them in a local county office like Westchester um, right now, I think would just be very meaningful. So that's uh, some of the reasons why I jumped into it. Um, also, I found this kind of stunning when I found out that only 24% of elected prosecutors around the country are women. Um, and while I don't think anyone should be elected for anything just because they're a woman, I think that if there are very qualified women, which I think I am, they should be stepping up and running for those kind of positions. So that that also had an impact on me. Well, that's great. I, look, there's no question you're very highly qualified for that job. Uh, and I'm excited to, to to learn more about this race and support you. So where can other people, uh, you know, li our listeners go if they want to find out information uh, about this about this race or about your candidacy? So we have a website. Um, it's Mimi Roca for F-O-R-D-A. And if they go to the website, it'll take them, you know, they can sign up their emails so they get uh, emails from our campaign and takes to my some of my position pages that I've uh, put out already. Um, obviously, people can follow me on Twitter where, you know, I'm still trying to be very active because I, you know, want to stay engaged on these national issues as well. Um, but I also post about my campaign there and I also have a campaign uh, Facebook page, which is also uh, Mimi Roca for District Attorney. 
Great. Well, thank you for taking some time out of the campaign trail to spend with us. Really appreciate it, Mimi. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk about uh, issues, legal issues at all levels. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 